First Timothy chapter four, that's where you can go to. How do you deal with the the conflict or the challenges to your faith as they come? And that's that's a rhetorical question, so don't answer. Because <laughs> we'll be here a long time if we start answering questions. Think about when you get challenged on Facebook or social media or even face to face with someone. It's remarkable to me how often these challenges come. What you may not see as much as I see is how they're the same challenges that have been coming for decades. Same exact ones. Um, I just shared recently uh, on Wednesday and, and Thursday night how my son Hayden had been getting some challenges on Facebook about, about the Bible and its, its validity and then about that the Bible is sexist and God is sexist and all these things. And, and, and as we've been talking and looking at these things, what's interesting to me is, is first off, they're the same exact criticisms and challenges to Scripture that I have heard my whole life. They just keep getting regurgitated again and again, and people think they've just come up with this. This one's going to break the Bible. This one's going to undermine Christianity, and it's the same lame, you know, challenge. But, but when you think about it, and and, and Paul is very clear with Timothy on this, the best way to respond is not to get into arguments about it. Because when you get into arguments about it, you just spin around and around. And the truth is, they're probably not asking because they want the real true answer anyway. They're just trying to get you off, or they're trying to offend your faith, or they're trying to uh, make you uncomfortable. Or, more often than not, they're trying to detour the real issue, which is their own heart. And I don't mean that judgmentally. I mean the issue is their relationship with or, or in opposition to God. That's the issue. That's the one that people don't want to deal with, so they'll throw out all kinds of smoke screens so they don't have to deal with what's really going on right here. And they don't have to deal with a, a God who has his hand out and he's saying, want to be in a relationship with me? Do you want to know me? I, I made you. I created you. I want you to know me, and I want you to know what it's like to be known by me. That's what he's offering. But the world we live in is just pushing back. And the way people tend to push back is they throw these things out. Well, the question in all of that... That keeps rattling around my brain, and I think we have a really good answer for tonight, is how do you answer that without getting into the arguments that are so typical? And how do you answer that without putting someone off? How do you go head-to-head with someone who's coming at you from a non-believing place and, and stand up for the truth? How do you do that? Well, I think the Lord has an answer, so let's let's pray about this and we'll take a look. Father, I ask tonight that what you... Give us. I already believe that what you are going to give us is, is incredibly practical. Now, that's some of the value of, of Paul's letter to Timothy. Is it's just so hands-on and so actionable. And, and truly, Father, this is actionable intelligence that you're giving us. And I pray first off that we will understand it and take it that way. And then secondly, that we will turn around and start to do these things. And actually apply these things in our lives. Lord, we trust you. We believe in you. Sometimes the, the challenges come at us and catch us off guard. Sometimes the questions uh, even rattle us a little bit. I pray, Father, that you will teach us to be faithful, to trust you all the more. And, and Lord, to know there is always an answer from you. More than that, Lord, would you make us like Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, um, which says, 
Paul talking to Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of of hands by the presbytery or the elders. Take pains with these things. Be in them. text says be absorbed in them, but it's just literally be in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who fear you. And on that last verse, I'll give you an explanation in a little bit here. Youthfulness. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Youthfulness, I I shared back when we first got into this letter a few weeks ago, it's the word in the Greek, nehotes. Nehotes. And what it is literally, and note this because it totally applies here, It means a person of military age. So when you see youthfulness, we see that translation and we might think, oh, it's a kid. No, no. No, a person of military age, 18 to 30 years old. And that's who Paul's talking to as he's writing to Timothy. Timothy at this part, at this point is probably in his late 20s. If he met Paul in 49 AD, and now at the writing of this letter, it's around 62 to 63 AD. And he met Paul when he was a teenager, 14, 15 years old. Do the math. Now he's in his mid to late 20s. So he is nehotes. It's the perfect uh, word for the age. Someone of military age. And here he is, Timothy, receiving this from Paul. And he's being told, let no one look down on your nehotes. Now, this, this can go a couple of different ways. One is you can have that sense of being someone in your 20s and feeling like you're looked down upon by people older in their faith. And they're looking at you, and they're going, oh, you'll, you'll come along. You'll get it eventually, you know. And, and Paul's saying, don't, don't let that happen. You can also take this as, just don't let someone look down on your faith, period. Don't let someone look down on you as a follower of Jesus. I take this personally. I am not Nehotes, not anymore. But I take it seriously for myself not to let someone look down on who I am in Christ Jesus. And that whole idea of looking down, you can't respond by going, don't look down on me. Don't do that. Don't, don't be defensive. That, that's, I think, the human reaction. I feel like someone's looking down on my youthfulness or looking down on my Christianity, and the reaction is defense. Well, don't do that. And that's not what Paul tells Timothy to do. Little little background for my own thinking on this. I was 24 years old when I began full-time ministry. I went into it. I was uh, the late May of 1989. And I became a youth pastor at the time. And at that time, I worked very hard to be respected. It was important to me. I was 24 years old, doggone it. I deserved a little respect. I had gone to college, got my degree in psychology, I went on to my master's degree, got a master's degree in clinical psychology, clinical community psychology. I figured at this point, I'm married. I've done all the things that I needed to do up to the point of being a 20... This is me in my twisted little brain, thinking I've done everything I need to do. Now, people will respect me. 
And so I got hired at my first church only to discover that the last pastor they had fired had a master's in clinical psychology and a cleft lip. And a cleft lip. My scars? This guy was just like me. And they had zero respect for people with psychology degrees I mean, that actually was brought up several times in my first year of ministry. And I realized God led me to probably the only church in the country where there was no respect for someone who had my credentials and my surgical background. <laughs> it, was, it, it was really kind of stunning. I mean, it was kind of a defining moment for me early on in ministry. And I was one of those in my first year of youth ministry where I, I just fought not to be a statistic. The statistics are that most youth pastors last 10 months and they're done. Not just at a church, they're done in ministry, period. 10 months, they're out. And I didn't want to be that statistic, so when I hit 11 months, I'm like, yes! And I crossed that one year mark, I was like, all right! And I I just kind of kept, I was just dumb enough to keep going, you know, and, and keep going. But it really ripped the rug right out from under me because I had all of this that I thought, I will bring this to the table and I will be respected. And I was not. Before I had even taught my first Bible study, I was not respected. And it was, it was really rattling for me. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Peter said, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. And Paul says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Clearly there were some people in Ephesus who were looking down on Timothy already. Or, or perhaps Timothy had communicated with Paul, how am I supposed to teach people who are 10, 20, 30 years older than me? How, why, why should they listen to me? And Paul's saying, Timothy, don't let them look down on your youthfulness. Think about Timothy. I mean, he, this guy... If you really look at the life of Timothy that we can draw out of all the letters of Paul and and out of the book of Acts, he's a remarkable young man. Mid-twenties, he was Paul's crisis manager. He was man. If there was trouble in Thessalonica, Paul sent Timothy. When there was crisis in Corinth, Paul sent Timothy. When there was trouble up at Philippi, Paul sent Timothy. He was always Paul's sending guy, this young man, but obviously strong enough in his faith that Paul trusted him to go fix the problem. I'm very impressed with this young Timothy. And yet, clearly he is struggling with the respect issue. And so Paul has to come in and support. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. So what does that mean? How do you overcome the condescension that sometimes accompanies the age? Let me just ask you, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like people were kind of looking down on you because you happen to be in your mid-twenties, you're not quite... You don't feel that way at all, Santiago? Okay. All right. All right, man. Well, we can work on that. I think we need to take it. (laughs) So Paul says, Timothy, don't don't let this happen. Don't, Don't allow the condescension to happen. And you know what? The wrong way to deal with it is to fight back. It never works. You don't demand respect. You demonstrate it. If you demand it, what ends up happening is those you're demanding it from will go, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? But if you demonstrate a life of respect, that's a completely different thing. And that's exactly what Paul says to do. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, 
in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Actionable behaviors. What Paul says is, do this. And you don't have to worry about them looking down on your youthfulness. You just do these things. And by the way, for your small groups, those are your five questions right there. Those five words, you're going to deal with those. Ask, where am I at in my life with each one of these things? How, how do I show this in just in my normal behavior? These are tangible traits of a follower of Jesus. And they're impressive traits as well. And they are, they're, they're um, trackable in your life. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. You can look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22, 23. You can look at the fruit and say, okay, am I growing in love? And am I becoming more joyful? Am I, am I more patient? Am I kind? You can go down the list. Same thing with these five traits. So, are these five traits apparent in your life as a follower of Jesus? And I would tell you that at some level they have to be. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you will look like Him. And this is the cool thing, and it literally hit me last night while I was teaching. I didn't share this on Wednesday night. Last night we went by the same verse, and I saw this, and I mentioned this. You know who verse 12 describes? It describes Jesus. Even more specifically, verse 12 describes Jesus when He was 12. So keep your finger right here and turn back to Luke chapter 2. That's awesome. Luke chapter 2, when he was a youth. When he was actually younger than Nehote. So he was not of military age. He was 12 years old. So he's 8 years earlier than even this. And yet what we see in this... Well, let me read it to you, and I want to go back over it. Did you say youth? Youth? He's a youth. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. That's just so cool. First of all, the boy Jesus. Our God was at one time called the boy Jesus. (laughs) It's just the best. So, the boy Jesus, they, they didn't notice he stayed behind. His parents were unaware of it. Verse 44, But supposed him to be in the caravan... And they went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Verse 48, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. What an amazing glimpse. The only glimpse we have into what we might call the childhood of Jesus. We, we go from His birth to age 12 to He's starting His ministry at age 30. But in this glimpse, we see the five characteristics that Paul says, Timothy, don't let them look down on your youthfulness, but in these five things, show yourself an example. 
to those who believe. And it doesn't matter if they're younger than you, and it doesn't matter if they're older than you. You live out these five things. And don't worry about it. This is how you answer back. And by the way, this is how you answer the arguments. The critics, the skeptics, you know, the cynics that come at you. You don't answer them by getting into a war with words. Those never go well. You answer by living the life of a Christ follower. And so here are these things. And and it's speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Follow these through with me just for a minute. Speech is the word... Interestingly, and, and this we're kind of back in First Timothy four, but but keep Luke chapter two open. The first word in, in First Timothy four twelve is speech, but the word in the Greek is logos. So literally, Paul's saying, "Listen, be an example in word. Be an example in word. Logos, the word was Jesus. Look at verse 46 of Luke chapter 2. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Have you ever found yourself talking to someone older than you and thinking, man, I know more Bible than they do? You ever been in that place? where maybe an older person in your life, you have a little more of a handle on the Word of God than, than they do? I ask that because think about this. Jesus knew the Word better than anyone. <laughs> Jesus is the Word. I mean, he, he was the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. So here is the Word of God sitting in the temple, and what's He doing? He is listening to them. And He's asking them questions. And then he's giving them answers. It's just—it's a remarkable moment. And the point is, that the way that you engage with word in your behavior is you listen. You ask probing or engaging questions. You, you offer your thoughts. Not as someone who, who knows everything, but as one who desires to know. And you will be an example of Jesus. He knew it all. And yet he was asking questions. He was the Word, but He was probing the priests and the teachers in the temple to see what answers they would give and to draw faith out of them. Even as a 12-year-old, and some might say, well, He was only 12. You think He was that intentional? (laughs) Yes, I do. Yes, I do, because even at the age of 12, He was still fully God, though He was a fully 12-year-old. So here's God with zits, you know, talking (laughs) to (laughs) to these authorities in the temple. But he's doing it in such a way that they are totally in. Now, if he as a 12-year-old had gone into the temple and started preaching at them, or being cocky and arrogant, which, mind you, being God, he had the right... If anyone has the right to be cocky, it's God. But he wasn't. He just brought the Word by bringing the Word out of them and by engaging them in this conversation. We see it in the example of Jesus. Note this, if you pop off knowledge without experience... Especially to people older than you. If, you. if you fire off stuff because, oh, I've got the answer to that, boom, and you throw it out there, what probably is going to happen is people, older people, will tend to look at each other with the face that I used to hate. It's the face that says, Junior will come along. Junior will eventually learn. Isn't he cute? <laughs> Isn't he cute with his, you know, it's not fair that older people do that sometimes, by the way. And I try not to because some of my best learning comes from those younger than me. 
But it will happen. The way to avoid that is, man, you just you be like Jesus in this situation. You do what Jesus did in this situation. You draw it out by simply asking questions, seeking to understand, and then as the conversation comes back around, and, and I'll, I'll pick on you just for a minute, Rachel, but Rachel does this. She doesn't even know it. I'm not, I'm not saying you pop off. What I'm saying is, <laughs> in our staff meetings, it's really interesting because obviously Rachel is the youngest person um, on the church staff. And in our staff meetings, we'll be having conversations, we'll be into the Word and sharing things. And, and Rachel brings so much to those conversations and oftentimes doesn't even realize she's doing it. She doesn't act like little Miss Know-it-all. And, and it's really cool because she'll, she'll just make a comment and, and it gets other people to thinking. And that's what I'm talking about here. And that's what we see Jesus doing here in speech. In Logos, he draws his own word out of other people. Very cool. Second word is conduct. Conduct is anastrophe. And you don't have to write these down, but it's literally what it sounds like. Conduct is behavior. It's manners. Think about this. If you went missing as a 12-year-old, would your parents have found you at church? Is that the first place you would have gone? Verse 46, again, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amidst all these priests. Down in verse 49, he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Literally, in my father's house is in the midst of my father's interest. Didn't you know I had to be, sometimes we'll say, about my father's business? Didn't you know I had to be where God's stuff was going on? And, and he's, he's not being rude and impudent. Well, how come you're, you know, he, he's being honest with his earthly parents. Didn't you know this was where you would find me? You've known me for 12 years. I think the implication is, based on Jesus' pattern of behavior, that's the, probably the first place they should have gone was the temple. But they went all over Jerusalem for three days trying to find him. And he says, no, this is, this is where I belong. This is where you, you should have found me. Why? Because even at the age of 12, the life of Jesus was centered around what his father was doing. Even as a, as a young boy, everything that he thought about, his focal point was the father. In fact, we see that through Jesus' entire ministry. His focal point is always the Father. It's interesting. The Holy Spirit, we're told in the Bible, glorifies the Son. But what does Jesus do throughout His ministry? He glorifies the Father. And we see this this Trinity. We were talking about the Trinity on Wednesday night. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every person of the Trinity glorifies the others. Which is beautiful. And so Jesus loved the Father. At the start of Jesus' ministry... He was back in this same house again. So at the age of 12 in the house, that's where he wanted to be. At the age of 30, when he started his public ministry, he goes into the house, and now he's clearing out the moneymakers. And he's angry about it. It's a holy anger. John chapter 2, verse 15 says, He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. That is so cool. That's one of the, the um, you know, Blu-rays I want to watch in heaven. <laughs> pop that one in to see Jesus do that. Yeah, you know. I mean, this, this is serious stuff. He wasn't like, hey, leave, you know. Get out of Dad's house. No, he's overturning tables. 
He's grabbing their, their pots of money and he's just turning it upside down and he's cracking the whip and they're like, oh, wait, let me get out of there. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to take on a large number of Jewish businessmen. That's guts. That's, that's, that's powerful right there. And he does it. It's amazing. So, he does that and then what does he say? He says to those who are selling the doves, take these things away. Stop making my father's house I didn't say my house, though it was his house. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered the prophecy that was made about him. Zeal for your house will consume me. I think it's so amazing that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, is in the house. At the beginning of his public ministry, he's in the house, and he's cleaning house. Three years later, at the end of his public ministry, he's right back in the house, cleaning house again. It's an interesting thing in the Gospels that John tells us that he went into the temple and cleaned it out in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the instance at the end of his ministry. That's not a contradiction. It's what happened. He cleared the temple before he even started his ministry. And then at the end, when it had gotten muddy and messy again with all the sheep and the animals and the coins, he cleared it again. That's Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke chapter 19. So, speaking of his father's house and interests, notice what Mary says to him in verse 48. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Now, had I been the son of God, and God was my father, and Joseph was not, my reaction probably would have been like, He's not my father. He's your husband, but he's not my father. Because Joseph wasn't. That's not what Jesus said. What does Jesus do? I believe he here shows love. And that's the third, the third behavior, the third character trait. We see in his, in his mannerism, that is his conduct, we hear in his speech, that is the word, and then we see the way he loves even his earthly parents with the word love there in 1 Timothy 4.12 is agape. So he shows, he reveals this unconditional love. If you want to be able to speak into the lives of other people, you don't do it by shouting them down. You do it by showing unconditional love. Even to those who would be in conflict with you. I love what we're we're sitting at the table uh, and and Jim was saying, making the comment that um, the conversations and the rants that go on across social media, they're not going to get anybody any closer to Jesus. What does it? One-on-one relationship sitting down and having coffee with someone and just sharing your heart it's really hard to yell at someone and get mad when you're both holding a cup of joe <laughs> when you're just sharing life you know you may you may not agree but man if you get eye to eye with someone you can say Connie I don't, I don't I just don't see it that way let me explain to you why and then she can say yeah but but what I've experienced in my life and now you're having a conversation and if you look at the other person whoever it is with the same kind of unconditional love Jesus shows Joseph and Mary you're going to win a heart you're going to get somewhere he was gentle he was respectful in his response they didn't even get what he was saying I mean he doesn't even address the your father and I he just says why were you looking for me did you not know I had to be in my father's house and note this Verse 50 says, they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And I believe they didn't get it because he was just so gentle. 
He was just so kind in the way he responded to what Mary said. He didn't slam. He wasn't rude. Man, he just shows unconditional love. Show that. Even when older ones or ones in conflict with you don't know what you know. Even though Mary and Joseph did not know what this younger Jesus already knew. The fourth uh, behavioral idea here is faith. Faith is the word pistis in the Greek. I don't like the sound of that word, but that's just that's the word. That's how you say it in the Greek, pistis. And in verse 47 of Luke chapter 2, it says, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus just evidenced. He didn't evidence legal knowledge. What was amazing about Jesus, and we see it throughout his ministry when the people were amazed at his teaching, he didn't teach like their, like their rabbis. He didn't teach like the Pharisees. He taught like one who had authority. Like he knew what he was talking about. And I believe even as a 12-year-old boy, but get this, the answers that he's giving as he's talking with these priests, they didn't reveal legalistic head knowledge. They revealed faith. And you might say, well, that's, that's kind of weird. I mean, Jesus is God, and he's evidencing faith. In God. Why does Jesus need faith in God? He is God. Right? I need faith in God, because I'm not. But, but He is. So what's this faith thing? It, it all goes to how we understand what pistis really means. Faith is not religion. Faith is not your traditions. It's not your methodology. It's not your denominational background. It's not your hermeneutic which is just a Bible study term. It's not how you exposit or exegete Scripture. Faith is simply trust. The Greek person would use the word pistis to refer to uh, the way a wife trusts her husband or a husband his wife. The way a friend trusts another friend. Joel, I, I, I have pistis in you. I have trust in you, we would say in the Greek. So the faith that Paul is calling out of Timothy, show them that you trust God. Show them you, you are in relationship with God. I, I, I repeat this so often, and I have for, for years now, about our faith not being religion, because we have somehow been drilled in the church that you have your faith. And it, it, it's almost like putting on a tie. I've got my faith. <laughs> there it is. And the tie of faith. You know? And that's not, that's not faith. I wouldn't say that about my wife. You know, I wouldn't say... I believe in my wife because the theological construct of our marital relationship is such that we both... Yeah, that's stupid. I, no, I trust her. I just trust her. I have faith in her. And that's faith. And to show that in your life, see, that, that knocks people off, off their seat when they're trying to come at you about is the Bible right or wrong or this or that. If they just see, why well, you really do trust God. Yeah, I do. Right? It's just kind of how I live. And we see this... In Jesus, he was a young man who simply trusted God. And the fact that a 12-year-old Jesus was confident enough and comfortable enough to hang out in the temple for three days... I mean, I remember being lost in department stores. Maybe not at the age of 12. I was a little older then. But but like as an 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old, lost in a department store, couldn't find my dad, and freaking out after like two minutes. Where is he? I don't know where he is. Cheryl and I have this thing even now where where, uh, like we'll go to a mall or something and we'll kind of get 
distracted or you know lose each other, and then we'll, we'll text, which is nice. Hey, where are you? I'm down by here, okay? And I'll go up to Cheryl and I'll say, I was scared because I couldn't find you. <laughs> but here's this 12-year-old boy. He goes to Jerusalem, which was a massive city, and he goes to the temple. He's just hanging out. He's good. Night falls. Time to go to sleep. I'm just going to go sleep over there by the wall. You know, and wakes up in the morning. I don't even know what he's eating for three days. He's not worried about it. He's not concerned at all. And the priests see this in this young man. Why was he unconcerned? Because he trusted his father. He knew when it was time to eat, there'd be food. And he knew where he needed, if he needed to sleep, he'd get that. And then he just hung out. Three days, 12 years old. It's just, it evidenced faith. It's trust. And, and walking that way around friends and around family and around unbelievers in your life, I just trust God. And it does something to them. They see that in you. It's behavioral. It's not something that you demand or something you say, I have faith. No, you just live it out, which is what Jesus did. We see it in number five, His purity. <clears throat> purity is a great word. It's hagnia. And hagnia, the reason I mention that specifically is it has a root word to it. If it sounds familiar to any of you, hagnia, hagias. The word hagias in the Greek is the word saint or holy one. So anytime you see in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, you see the word saint, that's hagias. Or if you see holy one, hagias, it's that same word. So hagnia is translated purity. It's, it's the behavior of a saint. Of a holy one. We see it in Jesus. Again in verse 46, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting amidst, in the midst of the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Purity. Okay, so how's that purity? Well, what, what do you do when no one's watching? What do you do in your private life when there aren't any other people from Connect around? Or there aren't Christian brothers and sisters near you? When it's just you. You know, what, what are you clicking on Netflix? What movies are you going to see? What, what are you taking into your body? What, you know, just think about that because, again, Jesus was in Jerusalem with three days completely on his own. He could have done anything. And what does he do? He evidences purity. He goes to the temple. He goes to church. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and understand why this is significant. It says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So when Jesus is now alone in Jerusalem, he very well may have been, as a 12-year-old boy, tempted to go somewhere or do something that he would have gotten in trouble for if mom and dad were there. But mom and dad aren't here. I can do whatever I want. I mean, I remember running away as like a 13-year-old for the afternoon. And thinking, I'm free, you know? I remember times in my life being a teenager and being in places my parents didn't know, and I'm like, I can do whatever I want, you know? I remember sneaking into my first rated R movie when I was too young. And Mom and Dad didn't know. They thought I was watching that other movie. But I was in this theater. (laughs) What do you do when no one's watching? What do you do when no one's paying attention? Purity is very simply, holiness is very simply what you do when it's just you and Jesus. And when you're not being held to account by anybody but yourself, are you making the pure choices? 
In Paul's final letter to Timothy, he suggests something that is wise for every one of us, and this is regardless of age, whether you're nehotes or older or younger. 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Note this, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. With those is the key. We're going to do this together. I'm not going to go off over here and go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to establish uh, faith, love, peace, righteousness. I'm going to avoid the youthful, youthful lust. I can do this. No, you can't. Mm-mm. No, you on your own, you're no good. Trust me. Because I on my own am no good. So I need to do this with you. And the more I'm surrounded, this is why I love Connect. I love that you're here. Who said it? You said it, Ashley. On, on a Friday night, of all places, Singing songs to Jesus, where where people your same age they're out you know drinking and partying and doing whatever, but you're choosing with everyone else to pursue purity. That's awesome, and that's how it works. You know, if it was just Joel here tonight, I, I probably wouldn't show up. <laughs> Sorry, just I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Listen, who did Jesus surround himself with when he was all alone in Jerusalem? Men of faith. He wasn't just in a building. He was in a building where he knew the priests would be, where the rabbis would be, where the Jewish leaders would be. He was around people of faith because that was the best place to be when he was all alone. So who do you associate with? And think about that. It's an old old question. How do those who you associate with affect you? How do they encourage you? How do they establish your purity? This is something we do together. We see in verse 52, which is at the end of this story, Luke writes that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That is such an amazing verse. For one thing, that Jesus kept increasing. The word increasing there, it means he, he was being filled. He was, it actually means proceeding. So as a 12-year-old, he was proceeding on a 12-year-old of faith to a 13-year-old of faith to a 14-year-old of faith. He was proceeding in life, just like we do, growing. And, and the words that are used here, wisdom, stature, and with God. In other words, he grew mentally, he grew physically, and he grew spiritually. Santiago's looking at me with that. Wait a minute, but he's God. How does that work? I thought he was God. He, he was God. And he was man. Fully God, fully man. Fully aware of what God is aware of, and yet fully experiencing everything that you and I have experienced. You can know that he understands you because he went through it just like we did. And I think that's amazing. That Jesus... Human self grew mentally. He learned things. And he grew physically like anyone would grow up. And he grew spiritually. And what that tells me is he never asked me to go through anything that he didn't go through himself. He's done it all too. He can really look at you and say, I get you. I I relate. I, I was human. I get the whole thing. Through it all, Jesus showed himself an example of those who believed. He was an example to the priests. Bless you. He was an example to the priests. He was an example to his parents. And guess what? He was also an example to everyone else who was in that caravan who would find out about the story later. Where did you find him? In the temple? Doing what? 
And the Bible tells us that, that Mary, his mother, treasured all these things in her heart. She went away from this experience thinking about, who is this kid? Now, she already knew it was a miraculous beginning to be, you know, to begin with. But listen, if you're uncertain, and go back now uh, to 1 Timothy. If you're not already there, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. And listen to this. If you're uncertain on any of these traits... And I want to send you out in just a minute to talk about them. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. If you're uncertain in your own life, man, I'm I'm okay in this one, but man, I'm not so good in this one. Listen, here is the key to establishing this example. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. And then verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the elders. Well, Timothy's spiritual gift we've been talking about was he was a teacher. He had the spiritual gift of teaching. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In other words... Be wordful nehotes. <laughs> be wordful in your youthfulness. Be wordful in your 20s. Be in the Word of God. Don't neglect the Word of God. Teach it where you can. Learn it where you can. Be in this Word because it will change your life. And you will find simply by walking in the Word and studying the Word and reading the Word, you will find that in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, you are in fact looking more and more like Jesus. Be in the Word. Now you might ask ask yourself, okay, but this last verse, as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Does that bother anybody? It should. Because I thought salvation was by grace alone, not by teaching someone else. I thought salvation came because I trust in God and He saves me, not because I do all these things. Well, understand this, that when it says you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you, what he's saying, he's not talking about salvation for eternity. He's talking about salvation from heresy. In other words, this is not about being saved. Timothy already was saved. But Paul is saying, Timothy, as you teach this, you will ensure that your fellowship in Ephesus, they won't drift into heresy. And you'll ensure that for yourself. You will save yourself from getting off on the Word of God because you're in the Word of God. And that's an absolute key here. There's an old prophecy and I want to end with this. Jacob on his deathbed was speaking to his sons. He had his 12 boys gathered around. The two grandsons of Joseph were there. And he's going around and he's, and he's given you know, a word for each one of them, blessing them and speaking prophecy over them. Genesis 49 verse 10 which says, Old Jacob, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What? (laughs) Now, I mean, we have several thousand years now of prophetic understanding. We can look back and go, Oh, okay, cool, he's talking about Jesus. Can you imagine standing there, and Judah is standing there, and old Jacob has has his right hand on Judah's head, you know, probably squeezing as he's talking, and, and he says this weird thing. Again, the scepter 
that is the, the, the very picture of rule, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And for years and years, decades, eons after that, the elders and the rulers of Israel, they clung to that promise. Because it was well understood before Jesus came that Israel would not lose self-rule before Messiah showed up. That is what the rabbis taught. That's what they understood. And especially in the days of oppressive Rome, man, we will have self-rule and self-governance all the way up until, until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah shows up. But something happened. A tragedy The historian Josephus wrote that the Roman procurator Caponius removed all legal powers of the Jewish ruling council, including the right to capital punishment, just after the close of the first decade A.D. It was a tragic day in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, Josephus tells us this, the Babylonian Talmud records that on that day, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, went around wearing sackcloth and ashes, weeping and wailing in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Woe to us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and Shiloh has not come. They took that prophecy of Jacob absolutely literally, and they were devastated when they lost self-rule, and Messiah hadn't come. And what they failed to recognize was even as they were weeping and wailing, that day in the temple in Jerusalem sat the 12-year-old Messiah. He had come. He came actually 12 years before they lost that right to self-rule. He came right on time. He came perfectly. Shiloh was there, Messiah in the boy Jesus. So let no one look down on your youthfulness. Father, I just pray that we will have the same confidence of Jesus because we have Jesus living in and and dwelling in us. Because You are present and because You promise to be. And Father, this is both a magnificent thought that surpasses my comprehension, Lord. But it's also a very simple reality that, that I can know You're right here. Help me to trust that. Help us, Lord, to trust that Shiloh has come, not just into the world, but into our lives. And I pray, Father, for all of my brothers and sisters, as I pray for myself as well, that You will help us be a people in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity that show ourselves examples to those who believe and, Lord, even to those who don't believe. And rather than defending ourselves, Lord, help us to demonstrate Jesus in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.